I want to begin in earnest several conversations that will mark the remainder of our journey through Luke's gospel. They're going to mark the first 15 weeks of the year, first 15 of 2023. Uh, Cards on the table, I'm hoping that we would treat the first 15 of 2023 as a fast, as a tithe onto God, an offering that we give to him and say, hey, God, here's the first 15 weeks taking us from January 1 to April 9th, which is Easter. We're saying, God, would you take this and would you draw me closer to your heart so that the remainder of the year is filled with your presence and your purposes are followed. But the conversations orienting around this statement, Jesus, our humanity, and their conversations orienting around a pretty significant argument. I use argument very loosely because really it's an assertion. But it's, an, it's a significant assertion that Jesus offers a better way to be human. This is the entirety of the scriptures. This is Luke's gospel particularly. And this is what we're going to dive into for the first 15 weeks of the year, 2023. Jesus offers a better way to be human. It's a truer and fuller way to be human. And he says, here it is, take it. You can have it. But I want to begin that conversation in earnest today by grabbing some of the beauty and the weight of this scene in Luke 3, Jesus being baptized, God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. It's rich. I want to examine today and bring out what's happening in this scene and have us walk away with just a few ideas. That's it. Examine what's happening here and then walk away with a few ideas. Let me begin it like this. This is going to be... Talk to the pastors. I've been really eager to preach this. There's some things in life that are unnecessarily difficult. Getting those plastic bags at Publix and trying to open them, unnecessarily difficult. And you have all the tactics. You got to snap it. That doesn't work. I have rough hands. I'm African. You know what I'm saying? But you snap, snap, snap. And then the bag, unnecessarily difficult. Other things like that, um, Ikea furniture, unnecessarily difficult. Christmas is upon us. Some of us have those boxes already shipped to our house. And you know what's in that box, this Ikea table set, unnecessarily difficult. And what happens if who, who likes Ikea furniture? I don't want to talk about you, but I am. Um, who, any, no, amen. No. Was that Pastor John John? I heard his voice, but I can't see his face. And I believe that was you. Amen, John John. Uh, but when you get Ikea furniture, they give you like this Swedish manual that has pictures. It's like caveman drawings. I'm like, yo, give me instructions. I need words. So if you're like me, you look at these pictures, right? And they, they kind of have the picture of what this fully assembled 
thing is supposed to look like and then these pictures of what you're supposed to do and process to get there. And so what I tend to do is I, I look at this with frustration and anger and then I throw it away. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just gonna figure this bad boy out because all you've done is give me pictures. You haven't really given me words. And I, I am visual, but I need the instructions as well. So what I end up doing is I use it kind of like a frame of reference, but then I kind of fill in the instructions with my own intuition. Does that make sense? I'm not the only one who does that, right? Allen wrenches are my kryptonite in Jesus' name. But, but I want to start that way because I, what I have seen pastorally, you know, as a Christian is the way I relate to Ikea furniture is how most, most of us relate to Jesus. We look to Jesus and we're like, ooh, frame of reference for a lot of ideas. He becomes the frame of reference, the picture of what it means to be Christian. Maybe he come, becomes the frame of reference or the picture of a good teacher or of even God, if that's where you are. But then you just kind of fill in the rest. And it kind of like, oh, I kind of look to him every now and then. And what I have seen is how dangerous and detrimental that is, particularly as it relates to being human. Jesus instructs us of what it means to be human, both in terms of the picture as well as the process to grow in our humanity. When we disregard or distort Jesus, we enter into subhuman experiences. It's detrimental and deadly. And Christians do it as well. And when Christians do it, it's worse. Because everyone is wrestling with the essential question of what does it mean to be human? What are the essential components of it? Cultural anthropologist Michael Welsh, in his book, The Art of Being Human, a textbook for cultural anthropology, he says a lot. It's really just a primer of anthropology, the science of humanity. But he says this, and I just thought it was really profound. He says, for the first time in human history, he's talking now, 21st century, post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment, post-Industrial Revolution, the world that we're inhabiting. He says, for the first time in human history, the average person has to continually ask themselves three questions that almost no human in that long history before has had to ask. Here are the questions. Who am I? What am I going to do? Am I going to make it? For almost all of human history, no one has asked these questions because these answers were already known. We were who we were. We would do what our parents did, and our future was not in our own hands. Modernity brought with it a world of choices, and with choices come questions and an obligation to answer them. And the questions go far beyond ourselves, reaching to an irresolvable climax. We build technologies that allow us to send messages at the speed of light. Automobiles start taking us faster and farther, dramatically changing the way we live and how we build our cities. We even learn to fly. 
We could cross oceans in a matter of hours, but such progress is set against the backdrop of two ghastly world wars that killed nearly 100 million people. Don't blink at that. It must be apparent that this story cannot possibly resolve itself and end well. Humans are more prosperous than ever, but there is a worrying and perplexing set of problems and paradoxes emerging. Time has brought us tremendous technological advances and higher standards of living. They haven't brought us more happiness. Facts. In fact, even though we are more connected than ever, we feel less connected. Your experience proves that. Crowded loneliness. To be surrounded yet feel that you're in solitary confinement. We have more power to do and be anything we desire, yet we feel more disempowered. Our lives are saturated with the artifacts of an absolute explosion of human creativity. Welcome to the Western world. Gadgets aplenty. The stuff that will exist in garbage heaps. We throw away creativity regularly. How many of our Christmas gifts are gonna last beyond 2023? An explosion of the genius of humanity only to exist in a graveyard of garbage. It's ridiculous, our wastefulness. Yet, we struggle to find meaning. The world around us doesn't have good answers to what it means to be human, although we're running into the same wrestle and tension, questions concerning our humanity. C.S. Lewis, he said this, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. We're made for it. John Wilhoyt, in his book, Spiritual Formation, As If the Church Mattered, said this, we are born homesick, longing for a land and a way of life we have never directly experienced, but which we know is somewhere, or at least ought to exist. We live in a lifelong culture shock. God has designed us to live in a perfect environment free of disease with affirming, open, and caring relationships, meaningful work, an ideal face-to-face relationship with God. But as a result of sin, we live in a less perfect world, and we find ourselves aliens, never entirely at home. We are somewhat like a piece of highly sophisticated electronic equipment designed to operate in a temperature and a humidity-controlled environment because its use in any other thing than a proper atmosphere means it's subject to ongoing maintenance problems. Christianity offers the best explanations of the world around us and the human condition, but it doesn't just offer explanation. It offers invitation to life and to Jesus, where Jesus becomes the picture of humanity exemplar. 
humanity as it was meant to be. And his life is an invitation to be a better human. Christian, listen to me. We don't just look to Jesus for soteriology. That's doctrines regarding salvation. We don't just look to Jesus for what it means to be saved, to be reconciled with God, and then that's it. We don't just look to Jesus to say, well, teach me how to live a Christian life. We look to Jesus not just for soteriology. We look to Jesus anthropologically. Jesus, teach me what it means to be human. That his life has weight to it. Does Jesus speak to our sexual experiences at all? Does Jesus speak to our experience with poverty at all? Does Jesus speak to what it looks like to work and see work not as a curse? Now, work is cursed, but work itself is not a curse. By the sweat of our brow, we work, but work itself is beautiful. Does this construction worker, that's Jesus, does he teach us anything at all about what it looks like to work? Does he teach us anything at all of what it looks like to be a son, a daughter, a child, a brother, a friend? Does he teach us anything at all of what it looks like to mourn with sincerity, but not to mourn without hope? Does he teach us anything at all of what it looks like to be infused with joy that extends beyond circumstances? Does Jesus teach us how to be human or does he just teach us how to be Christian? Now here's the argument. That's why I said it's, it's an argument. I'm using it loosely, but it's really an assertion. Because Jesus is humanity exemplar, the picture of what it means to be truly and fully human. Following Jesus is the only way to experience who we were meant to be. That means not being Christian, not following Jesus, is synonymous with choosing a subhuman experience. You were made for something better than that. But when we don't follow Jesus, all that's left for us is a dehumanizing experience where sin rules. We talk about sin weirdly, not in the way the scriptures talk about it. The scriptures talk about what sin does to us beyond just making us dead and separated forever, but how it fundamentally alters who we are. There's a reason why those who are consumed with lust can't have sustainable relationships with the opposite gender or the same gender if you're moved in that direction, where you become nothing more than a beast. Sin dehumanizes. There's a reason why those of us consumed with greed only look to people for what they can do for us. It dehumanizes the other. Does Jesus offer something better? I think he does. I think the baptism of Jesus is so dramatic that it captures the argument that Jesus is offering a better way of being human and what that looks like in a spiritual sense as well. 
so forgive me, but I'm just tired of watching my friends feed on ashes. This is Isaiah 44, where God is saying, yo, I'm like, there are people who are carving out idols out of desires, out of fears, out of hopes, out of dreams, not just trees. And they're turning to these non-gods to tell them something about themselves. And he says, that experience is just feeding on ashes. It's like eating cotton candy, empty calories, but it's smoke and ash, it kills us. And we turn to Jesus for life, eternal and everlasting, but life in the here and now as humans wandering to eternity. The baptism speaks, it speaks, speaks. What's happening here, ideas, and then we're done. What's happening here can be seen with the Father, with the Son, and the Spirit. We'll take it bit by bit, and then we're out. Um, Let me read, and then let's get after it. Baptism of Jesus, it's (laughs) two verses. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In the baptism of Jesus, the father is speaking, the spirit is descending, and Jesus is displaying something powerful. There's onlookers as well. Each of them help us. The baptism of Jesus is a historic moment with some significance. So all four gospel accounts capture this moment, which is powerful because that means that this is bound to understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and the life that he offers. You could read any individual gospel and you could be moved to faith and life with Christ, to know who the Son of God is, to know what it looks like to be with him forever, to repent and believe. That is found in any individual gospel. All the gospels are going to use different aspects of Jesus's life, different historic events to piece together their accounts. And so there's some things that they're going to include and there's some things that they're going to exclude. But every individual gospel has utility in and of itself Not to give us an expansive picture of God, but to give us a sufficient picture to know God. Does that make sense? When we look at these gospels and we grab stuff that is found in each one, our mind is most supposed to go and say, wait, why is that in everyone? Is there something here that may teach me something that is essential to Jesus and Christianity? Does that make sense? And so there's significance to this baptism moment. It is captured in every single gospel account teaches us about the nature of God. God exists in Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian idea. Implications abound from God existing in Trinity. Community being one of them. Connectedness being one of them. Isolation is foreign to our our existence as humans. We're not made for it. Let's get what's happening with the Father. The Father is speaking to the announcement of approval and a call for action. The Father speaking is an announcement of approval and a 
call to action. The announcement of approval readily seen, the call to action not so much so. But this is why we have the the beauty of the rest of the gospel accounts, and we have the beauty of the rest of the story within those accounts, and we can examine this baptism scene like a prism from each side. What are the other gospels telling us about what is happening here? What is the rest of the story telling us about what is happening here? And so there are two times in the gospels where God's voice is going to tear through the heavens. This is the first one. Now, this is breaking 400 plus years of silence, and God is breaking 400 years of silence to say something. I'm going to get back to that. The second time is going to be at the transfiguration of Jesus. This is coming later in Luke chapter 9. And at the transfiguration of Jesus, this is where Jesus is unfolding his glory. They behold him, and they're undone. Now, they start speaking. They should just be silent and sit with the glory, but they don't. And they're like, Peter, hey, let me help. let's build an altar here. And then God disappears. That matters. But what, what the voice from heaven that tears open the skies is saying is this is my, my chosen servant. Listen to him. And so we grab those two like divine announcements to piece together what God is doing. Approval and call to action. By the way, that is consistent with the scriptures. These dramatic displays of grandeur from God are never arbitrary. They're never just like, oh, look, pretty. They're always made to move us towards something, to call us towards something. They're called to action. And so the action that is being called here is if I am affirming this person, Jesus, follow him. That the onlookers, some perplexed, But others caught that. Yo, the sky has broken open and God has said, I'm pleased with him. Follow him. The approval is beautiful because sequence matters. This is one of my favorite things to ever preach on. This is divine approval. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is before Jesus does a thing that he would be known for. No eyes that were blind being opened. Luke 4, that's how we're going to end the year, temptation of Jesus. No defeating Satan in the wilderness, resisting well. There's no feeding of the 5,000. There's no healing of the lame. There's no touching of the lepers. There is no activity that marks Jesus that we're like, yeah, miraculous, good. You did a great job. None of that takes place. Shows us that the approval of God is primarily bound to relationship and identity, not activity. Activity flows out of that. So before Jesus did a thing, God's approval booms from the heavens. This is mine. Now, the first time I heard my dad said, Say, I was pleased with you, son. I was in my 20s. Did something to me, though. Did something to me. Because we're made for it. What would your life look like right now? Christian, I'm talking to Christians right now. We're going to get to humanity. Christian, right now, if you believed that God looked at you the same way he looked at Jesus Christ. 
with eyes of love and approval and care and desire and connection and want. When I look at my son who looks like me, I get terrified because I know me and I see me in his eyes and I pray. I pray for his teachers. I pray for his future wife as God so blesses. I pray for his siblings because man. And I stare at him, not like a creeper stalker, but I stare at him and there's nothing he could do to change my heart for him. And he has tried. Believe me, he has tried a lot. He has tried a lot in the last week. As he gets older, he's excelling in different ways to try and get me to unlove him. And it's impossible. Christian, if we just believe, like, what would your life look like if you believe that God saw you the way I see my son, but more excellent? That's what's happening here with the father, approval, and a call to action to follow Jesus. The spirit is descending. The spirit descending is a reinforcement of Jesus's messianic identity and an empowerment for his messianic activity. So descending is reinforcement and approval again. So there's this collision of approval. We know this to be true because we could look to Acts and in, in Acts chapter 9 of 10, where the spirit is descending on the Gentiles. They're like, oh my God, they're actually accepted into the family of God. What happened to them is what happened to us in Acts chapter 2. So it's a proof the spirit coming and descending is approval. It's reinforcement of identity. These are mine. But it's a little bit more specific here. John's gospel is going to draw this out. John is going to say, man, I didn't really know who the Messiah was, which is so mysterious. I had thoughts. I was kind of, but when this, but the spirit descended on him and I was like, oh yeah, cool. The one who told me go baptize said that you will know that the Messiah has come when you baptize and the spirit will descend on him. So many ideas come out of that. How John the baptizer, how can he be so blind? So many ideas come out of that. That, that Jesus met him and his resistance, and he didn't say, John, what's wrong with you? But he still was tender and kind with all of his unbelief and his process of growth. And so there's reinforcement that's happening here, but it's not just reinforcement, it's empowerment. This is the argument Luke is making. 76 times in Luke's writing, Luke acts, okay? So you got to take them as a collection Right? Book one, book two. Book one, Theophilus, Luke. Book two, Theophilus, Acts. And you combine that and you see what Luke is getting at. And 76 times in those writings, the Spirit of God is mentioned. 
specifically in just Luke, after this scene, the Spirit pops up again and again and again and again and again, filling with joy, empowering, casting out. And he's, what, he's trying to, what he's trying to draw the attention of the reader to is that the Spirit of God is the one who is animating activity. We were in Nashville last week. It's not just geographically south, it's culturally south. I'm a son of the cultural south, by the way. We get off the airplane, we're in the car, and this is when I remember that my kids are really from Miami. They're Miami through and through, y'all. First, we're in the car for like 20, 30 minutes, and they're like, why are we still in the car? Oh, my God. Why do we fly to take a road trip? Man, this don't make, stop. Now, they looked outside. I'm not going to name who said it, but one of them was like, why are the trees dead? Okay, here we go. So there's this thing called seasons, blah, 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 right? But let's say that they were like, man, these trees are dead. We want to have them come to life. So let's say they flew back to Miami, grabbed all of the greenery, flew to Nashville. This is a very weird analogy, but follow with me. Flew back to Nashville and started stapling these leaves on these dead trees. You would say, what is wrong? Oh, you're Moochie's kid. That's what's wrong with you. That's why we just, right? But you're saying, it makes no sense. Stapling greenery on the outside of these dead trees isn't going to make these trees alive. They may look like they're alive, but we know better. Right? Yes? Yes. The picture the scriptures paint is that it's the spirit of God that makes one alive. And if the Spirit of God does not live in you, you are not alive. And trying to be a Christian without the Spirit of God is crazy. It is stapling greenery to your life. Let me just add patience. Good luck. It doesn't work that way. What Luke means for all of us to see is that the Spirit is fueling somebody for something. Enforcing the greatness of God, that God has a designation, mind, son, daughter, and then growing from them life everlasting. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Watch all sorts of Christians say, I'm going I'm to try to be more patient. And what they're really doing is trying to do by force what only the Spirit could do through dependence. This is what Luke is getting at. Descending, empowering, which leads us to Jesus where we're going to close. What's happening with Jesus is the son is displaying the life he's come for and the life he's inviting others into. So much majesty here. Matthew pulls it out and says that there's this conflict here. I'm not going to baptize you, Jesus, even though the father told me to go baptize. I'm not going to do it. Because I know better. You're supposed to baptize. That's why it's so mysterious. It's so weird. And Jesus responds to John the Baptist, like, refusal to baptize. Listen, do it. And I'm fulfilling all righteousness. I'm not being made righteous. This is a different type of baptism. I'm not being cleaned. But in this moment, I am showing what humble obedience and service looks like. I am displaying the life that I've come for and I'm inviting people into. It is a life of dependence where God says, jump, I say, how high? 
And then I believe because it's a life of dependence, if he says jump from here to the tallest mountain in the world, Everest, I think it still is. I'm not sure. Anthropologist, not geography in Jesus' name. Then I believe that if he says jump, that he's going to give me the power to actually jump. That's dependence. It's obedience of faith and belief that he's going to empower me to action, fulfilling righteousness. That's what's happening here. The life that he's meant to live, which is why what follows is amazing. What follows is Jesus in Luke chapter 4 saying, I'm led by the Spirit to resist temptation. What follows is Jesus in Luke chapter 4 saying the Spirit of God is on me to announce good news and bring people to freedom. What follows is Jesus in Luke chapter 10 rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, not rejoicing in the fact that miracles are happening, but rejoicing in the fact that God is his and he is God's. What happens is a life of dependence and empowerment, which means Jesus is embodying the life we were meant for. You put Luke chapter 3 side by side with Acts chapter 2, it's amazing. Spirit descends on Jesus, and then the Spirit does work through his life. Acts 2, spirit descends on the disciples, the church, and then the spirit does work through their lives as the people of God. It's model, it's pattern. He's making a point. The grid. Perspective. Jesus embodies a truer, truer, and fuller experience of what it means to be human. Again, this is just appetizer to dive into that. Some case studies of this. Looking at David, at Solomon, at Ruth. Case studies. The practice. We're going to expand on this all the more at the start of the year. But if we if we want to experience the life we were designed for as humans and then the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life expressed fully in following Jesus with faith. There's two practices. First, be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Second, become like Jesus. Be with him. First John, that which we've seen, that which we heard, we present to you, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. That Jesus Christ, through his life, is inviting people into an ever-increasing relationship with the Father and with others. Be with Jesus. Spend time with him. Rest in this love relationship. Become like Jesus. These are the practices that we, we've talked about in the past, but we're just going to explain all the more and say, let's get after it. The picture from the other side is 
living from well-pleased and living for well-done. Matthew 25, 21 and 23 says this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's bookends in Matthew and their bookends in the life that God wants for us because every one of us was made for glorious purpose and we feel it. We feel it. We sense it. We weren't born to just survive. We weren't born just to do a job that doesn't bring us joy. We were born to remake the world through the raw materials that are here and fashion it for glory. That's why if you're an administrative assistant, your work is glorious, bringing order out of chaos. That's what God did in creation. That's why if you're an artist, your work is glorious, refashioning colors to paint beautiful pictures of beauty. This is Genesis. Hebraic thought, sequence matters. And in the sequence of creation, it was beautiful before it was useful. There's something powerful of just delighting in that which is beautiful and not always looking for the utility of it. Artists, thank you. But adjacent to that is making disciples, followers of Jesus who are becoming truer and fuller humans. It's a glorious purpose. You were made for it. And so we live from a place of unloved, but we live for that well done. That, yeah, when it's all said and done, I did a good job of what God gave me this life. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your baptism of Christ this moment that you included where we could see your divine approval announced from the heavens. Thank you. Thank you for the reality of the spirit coming and empowering those who receive Jesus in faith. Thank you. Thank you for your obedience, Christ, that you weren't subhuman. Yes, God of every God, we, we know this to be true, but you weren't Subhuman, you didn't have some weird human existence. You, you sweated, you bled, you ate, you suffered at our hands, oh God. Your humanity was true. And thank you that you gave us a picture and a process and a pattern to follow after, to experience life relationally connected to the Father in service that is excellent and glorious. Give us eyes to see. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.